it's important to win elections. They matter and have consequences. They are not themselves outcomes. It is not a playoff series where you hope your team wins and the other team loses. It is the setup for who has power and what they do with that power in terms of improving lives or damaging them. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My returning guest is Daniel Squadron, the former New York State Senator who worked with Adam Pritzker and Jeffrey Sachs to launch an organization which works to elect Democrats to the often overlooked but very important state legislatures, including raising $60 million for that purpose in 2022. We caught up about what they've been up to since he was last on the show. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Daniel Squadron, The States Project. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Daniel, welcome back. I last talked to you just over a year ago and before that in 2019. And I know that you, as a former state senator and someone working on elections at the state legislative level, you have to have been pretty busy since we last talked. Can you update me on what have you been up to and what is going on politically in the state legislatures? Sure. It's actually only been a year but it's a Rip Van Winkle moment in terms of the dramatic changes in state legislatures. In the 2022 elections, we had state legislative outcomes that far outstripped what any analysts would have predicted and outstripped the half-century history of underperforming in state legislatures. So we were able to flip the Pennsylvania House by fewer than 100 votes, both chambers in Michigan creating a new trifecta, the Minnesota Senate creating a new trifecta. In Arizona, we were able to stay within one seat of partisan control in each chamber, but that means majorities that are willing to uphold at least some of the fundamentals of democracy, which is critically important. New Hampshire ended up in a near tie in the House depending on what day of the week it is, literally. And in Nebraska, a really important supermajority threshold was also held off. That was just November. Rip Van Winkle, remember, multi-year thing. Years have happened since then because we've seen the new majorities in Michigan and Minnesota pass more bills in the first 100 days than were passed in the first 100 days of the prior five sessions with the other majorities combined. We've seen meaningful impact in the world 
from those, whether protecting basic civil rights for all Michiganders or fundamentally changing the relationship between government and working people in Minnesota or gun safety laws in Michigan. And in Pennsylvania, we've seen them repeatedly defend that majority that they barely won in special election after special election, and that new House majority start to take the reins as well. I'm glad that we didn't meet in the fall because it would have looked like, what happened is we won elections, woohoo. It's important to win elections. They matter and have consequences. They are not themselves outcomes. It is not a playoff series where you hope your team wins and the other team loses. It is the setup for who has power and what they do with that power in terms of improving lives or damaging them. And that's a lot of what's occurred over the last six months. We've seen new majorities have a big impact on improving lives. The immediate commentary after 2022 was focused a lot on the midterm pattern of loss for the party in power, and you referred to that. After the time that's elapsed and considering and looking at why things went the way they did a little bit longer, what is your sense of why that pattern was broken? What was the fundamental variable or variables behind a better than expected performance? Is it tactical stuff? Like we spent money in the right places? Was it the overreach by the right? Was it the leadership you know, out of the president? What do you think caused this interruption in the pattern? Well, Adam Prisker and I co-founded the States Project five plus years ago to try to lead to this outcome. Now, there were many, many contributors to it. You always, more than the contributors, you have to credit candidates who went out there and ran great campaigns for their districts. They weren't running the national race. They weren't running some race from Lansing to the Beltway. They were running their race in their district. But we also do think at the States Project that an important lesson is that better funded, better run campaigns with more attention paid really, really matters. So we were able to invest nearly $60 million in the last cycle across our programs and states. And that meant that just on our side of the wall, the States Project contributed 80 times more than the next biggest giver in the fight for the Pennsylvania House, eight times more than the next biggest giver in the fight for the Michigan Chambers, two and a half times more than the next biggest giver in the fight in Minnesota, 30 times more than the next biggest giver in Arizona. And it wasn't just dollars. You know, We really believe in dollars, data, and door knocking. So that's the dollars part. Data means, let's make sure that campaigns are being run in the best possible way to communicate to voters who the candidates really are. Pretty simple concept, but one that often isn't applied, especially at the local level, which is so often overlooked by the top strategists and consultants in the country. And the third is when we say door knocking, certainly the data shows knocking on people's doors is the right thing to do, but we pull that out as its own principle because it's democracy the way you'd want it to be run. It isn't about campaign dollars, which then lead to other kinds of voter contacts, is direct contact between someone running for office and the person who's considering whether or not to vote to hire them. And so we really encourage candidates we work with to knock on doors and hundreds of thousands of doors 
got knocked on personally by candidates across these states. And you can see a through line from the candidates who themselves knock on the most doors and those who most overperform. You know, it's very hard to tell lies and do scare tactics about a candidate who you've met. It's very easy to do it about a candidate who's just communicating with you via the airwaves and the mail and digital. If you're raising $60 million and deploying it the way that you've described, that can't be done directly. You must have a lot of partners that are actually intermediaries or bringing their local expertise to the fight. Tell me a little bit about how you fit in with the ecosystem and who those dollars go to beyond campaigns directly. You know, the most important partner is the candidate themselves, the legislative caucuses or groups that are going to end up governing themselves. That's actually true in terms of practically how to have the biggest impact with dollars, but it's also, I think, what we would want to be true to the extent possible that we know who is receiving the dollars and the person who's actually going to serve or the campaign of the person who's going to serve is the one that's out there. So more than 90% of our dollars actually go to efforts that can actually coordinate with the candidate themselves. And a good example of how that works is we're very clear. We just want to know sort of basic values in a very clear way. Want to know that you're going to run a campaign that is based on going to voters in the best way. So in a number of states, we've said to candidates, you go knock on doors. Right now, the way most candidates spend most of their time is on the phone raising money. Why don't you go knock on doors? And the candidates who knock on the most doors will get largest contributions. They're knocking on doors instead of talking to donors, going to meet voters. Let's make that possible for them. That's the primary one. We would never, as a national group, come into a district or a campaign or a state, a group of grassroots groups in a state, and say, we're going to do this ourselves. We know best, and FYI, we're going to be doing this. We always say the in-state efforts know best, and whenever possible, by in-state efforts, we mean the actual candidates and lawmakers themselves so that they can figure out within some standards and principles of well-run campaigns what the best way to do it is. Where are you getting $60 million? So the biggest portion of our electoral funding in terms of number of donors is our Giving Circles program. So I think we've talked about this before. Our Giving Circles are groups of people that come together, they create their own giving group, they get a page, and then they go out to their communities and they say, I know cable news and your social media feed and the newspapers are talking about whatever horrible thing is coming out of Washington. But if we're really going to have a measurable impact on outcomes, we can do a lot more with state legislatures. So we have hundreds of giving circles with well over 10,000 donors all across the country who have formed themselves and gone out to their communities. And then their dollars get driven to these in-state electoral efforts. There's two really powerful things about that. One is for many folks who aren't just enormously, enormously wealthy, they feel like observers to the political process. When you're contributing to a multi-billion dollar presidential campaign or even a single $65 million gubernatorial campaign in Texas, 
there's some truth to that. When you're talking about a few thousand dollar state house campaign in New Hampshire, it's a much bigger impact. The second thing is these groups just want to have an impact in ways that are really clear. They want to make sure that women and doctors aren't being imprisoned or losing their lives for accessing reproductive health care. They want to make sure that basic civil rights apply to everyone. They want to make sure that a full-time job is enough to support a family, that from the time a kid is born to the time they start kindergarten, there's actually the kind of supports for them and their family that gives them a chance and real opportunity. It's pretty basic stuff, and it takes people off the sidelines and away from doom scrolling and doom clicking with their contributions to something that feels a lot more active. I heard from the former president of the United States that our elections are not fair and that things are rigged and that he actually won. And I also heard from our side that things are not fair because of voter suppression and some actual things that are happening. Can we trust our election results still? First of all, we we have to. We have to have a system in which the results have meaning. Now, we have to do everything we possibly can to increase good reason too. But the idea that elections are declared not won by the vote count is an extremely, extremely dangerous one for a democracy. Democracy is imperfect, absolutely. Our democracy is imperfect for sure. The foundational tenets and promises of our democracy are the right ones to fight for and believe in, even though it is often frustrating that there are imperfections. A fundamental part of that is the outcomes in terms of vote counts. Courts are critical. The Supreme Court just, and I know we'll talk about this, came out with a decision that, to our surprise on some level, validated some of that idea. And it's real important that that was validated, considering how just incredibly conservative this Supreme Court is, how terrible some of their decisions have been. Because it says, look, you have to have election laws. Those election laws are laws like others. They are adjudicated by courts and state constitutions and federal limits like others. That's critical. We should be improving our election systems every year to make it easier to count more votes more quickly with more assurance, to make it easier for more people to participate in the system more often in more elections where their votes are more likely to be the deciding vote. Those are critical things. And after the polls close and the votes count, part of our responsibility is to support the idea of the election result, not undermine it. Clearly, the laws in the states that set the rules for how elections are conducted are important and can affect the outcome on the margins, especially if they make it easier or harder to vote or easier or harder to vote in certain areas or among certain types of people where voting is more or less of a challenge. How do you think we're doing right now in terms of state legislatures on that particular key democracy issue? Like we know that after 2016 and even more dramatically after 2020, dozens and dozens of bills moved in states across the country that made it harder for folks to vote that were extremely in a way that has a massively chilling effect 
punishing of folks who, you know, inadvertently were deemed not have acted appropriately like we've seen in Florida. So as a country, we have on the books law after law that makes it harder for people to participate in the system. We also had lots of states make it easier, right? Yes. Well, and then (laughs) after 2022, well, we saw a bunch around COVID. And then after 2022, we've seen Michigan and Minnesota in particular pass laws that help to reopen the opportunity to vote as both a practical and a legal matter for uh, large numbers of voters. That's really important. We've seen so-called blue states do that even in the same period. The reason I was actually sort of focusing on some of the negatives is I actually think that it's important that we don't give up on those places. As you point out, voting laws can have a big impact on the margins and close elections that can be decisive. And it is not itself decisive in terms of having states be kind of erased from our map. We're a 50 state nation. And I believe even in those states that have made voting harder, we need to continue to try to find ways to compete. And when I say we, I mean, those of us who believe in a liberal democracy, those of us who believe in elections, those of us who believe in personal freedom and effective government. You know, I look at at places like uh, Georgia that have made it harder to vote, but are still very much part of the national conversation. That's great. I wish places like Montana and Utah were also part of the national conversation, even though they're not presidential swing states, because I think there's opportunities in those places for coalitions that would make, for example, when it comes to democracy, make democracy work better instead of the direction they've been going. In that recent case, Moore versus Harper, that was decided by the Supreme Court, they didn't allow this independent legislature's theory to be validated that would have said... Basically, the legislature without the state courts can make the rules, which seemed like a good break for us, given how a few of the state legislatures seem to want to just declare the victor rather than let the voters decide. Some of the very good political law commentators, though, said, yes, this is a big win, but it's not a clear victory that there's a kind of a milder version that's been allowed to go through. That is more of a time bomb where at some point the Supreme Court or federal courts can step in and overrule state courts. Obviously, it's a very complicated system. And when when you get to a national election coming down to one state or two states that are a few votes separating the two parties like, like Florida in 2000, anything is pivotal. How does that decision play into your work and how do you read the results? Well, the claim that got as far as the Supreme Court and that it seems that three justices support is the absolutely through the looking glass idea that state legislatures without governors, without state constitutions, without state courts have some magical power conferred by the Constitution when it comes to federal elections that is basically unreviewable. I don't know if it's good news or horrible news that we need to say that idea did not carry the day. It got bizarrely close to carrying the day. It was heard by the court as though it was a reasonable idea. I think the next case on the docket was, is gravity allowed in the United States? 
But well, the Constitution does say state legislatures so are in their defense. I mean, I agree with you that Constitution's been like been operating and tested uh, for close to 250 years. It's telling that there was like, I think in that entire time, one sort of case that even got even close to this and had a very decisive result in this direction. So, yes. Anyway, that's good news. Bad news and good news. Bad news, we have to talk about it. Good news. And I think really good news. I would not have necessarily predicted, certainly not for sure, would not have predicted at all that that was the result as, as bizarre as the other results. It is also true that a bunch of these things that aren't the presidential election and the personality-driven coverage of it and the tens of billions of dollars and the couple of other statewide races, U.S. Senate and governor around the country that get all this attention because the stories are so compelling, are enough for our democracy. Our democracy, as you point out, super complex. This result shows just how important the interplay of all of these pieces are. Here's one, for example, Virginia coming out of that decision. So the state legislature doesn't have this unique and magical authority, thank goodness. But there's a lot of power in there for state governments. In Virginia, this year, you have an election where it's possible, if things don't go well, there'll be a trifecta in Virginia in which the governor has certainly flirted with the idea and lots of members of the Republican caucuses in both houses have said that they would undermine the election. Post Moore v. Harper, if the governor and legislature in Virginia want to get together and undermine the election in that state, it's dangerous, very dangerous. And those 13 electoral votes in Virginia are the tipping point when you look at the number of states where legislatures and the governor could potentially act together to determine the, the president, whoever won their states. So the legislative election, the governor's not up in Virginia this year. Both chambers of the legislature are. Those elections are every bit as important for the existence of a free and fair presidential election as Michigan and Minnesota and Pennsylvania and Arizona were in 2022 before Moore v. Harper was decided because of Youngkin, right? In those other states, there was a fear that even with Whitmer and Shapiro, et cetera, uh, Hobbs now, you know, it still wouldn't matter. Virginia got a Republican governor who was flirted with the idea of election subversion. So first, so, you know, let's be real clear here. The magical power of state legislatures was not validated. The idea that there are lots of paths that the court left open, including the normal legislative process within a state, regardless of the will of the voters, and as you point out, federal courts sticking their nose in, are real risks. Here's the other thing, though, that I really worry about. Talk about the resources and the scale in 2022. Talk about how meaningful those elections were. Talk about our conversations. It is a chilling idea that state legislatures could decide the presidential election, right? For all of us, even for me, who spent the last 15 years, 16 years of my career, only focused on state legislatures. That's an upsetting idea. The president certainly is a, is a job that matters in this country. We can all agree. I'm a little concerned that people will overlearn the lesson of Moore v. Harper, though. Oh, well, state legislatures don't have this unique magical power. Therefore, they can go back to the backwater minor league overlooked and underinvested in, you know, one horse town that they were previously. That would be an enormous mistake. This idea bubbled up from the do dominant power that uh, proto-authoritarian right-wing movement had in state legislatures 
for nearly half a century. That's where it bubbles up and why it bubbled up. Another idea will as well. A right that was in the Constitution just about a year ago for reproductive health care and abortion no longer is. In that case, Alito's view did carry the day. He said that right now goes to the, quote, people's representatives. He means state lawmakers. That's both a critical issue on its own merits and a sign of what can happen to a constitutional right, which is gets handed to state lawmakers. We talk about opportunity in this country and economic opportunity. From the time a child is born to the time most kids who are going to go on from high school, either to technical education or college, graduate, they are in services funded and provided by the state. Or in the case of what's an attempt to happen with education now, they're not at all until they get to the state universities, which, by the way, are being hollowed out as part of an ideological, really presidential battle in Florida and elsewhere. State legislatures continue to be absolutely fundamental to our democracy. And more v. Harper, and you know, for me, and you can tell I've got, got some, some feelings on, on this, for me, the fact that they needed to have an imagined unicorn-like magical ability to fly all over the country and sprinkle their magic presidential elector dust anywhere they wanted was what we needed to get a penny on the dollar investment for every dollar in politics is a real mistake. Now that they don't have that magical power, they just have the fundamental power, as you point out, in the Constitution and actually 250 years of precedent. And I think they're going to go back to being one one thousandth of a penny on our political spending and focus. And that's going to be a crisis for the country. And it's going to lead to another crisis that's going to bubble up onto the stuff people actually care about, like presidential elections and federal elections at a time and date to be determined. You seem pretty concerned that the pieces are in place for what you're calling election subversion, that without sufficient attention, which it sounds like your concern might not be there, that we may have the power at some state or multiple state level to change it, the results of a national election in by one of the many routes, you know, whether it's the contest goes to the U.S. House and it matters the number of people in every delegation or or whether it's the laws in, in the state or some trickery with laws there. What most worries you in what could be happening going forward and what most worries you that we won't tackle with enough vigor? I'll tell you two things because they, they actually worry me. They both worry me completely. I have, I'm a vessel that is capable of uh, uncommon level of worry. Multivariate worry. Exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, we all have our strengths and weaknesses. So one is actually just the short-term one in Virginia this year, especially in the wake of Marvy Harper in the odd year. Very hard for a Democratic presidential candidate to win the presidency and not have Virginia's electoral votes. I really worry about what Youngkin and a Republican legislature in Virginia could do in 2024. Again, that, that could be the tipping point number of presidential electors. Do you think the Republicans are in good position to get that trifecta that they want? What do you think the likelihoods are? It is in the zone of extremely competitive. How we'll feel going into the polls opening is probably going to be driven by some events that have not yet occurred or some you know data points that have not yet come in. So it's, it's in the zone of, I'd rather be one of us or the other one. And we don't know what that will end up being as we get closer. Are you having difficulty raising the requisite resources from? Absolutely. Yeah. Relative to what's appropriate. 
Yeah. I mean, so requisite, you know, we're really pleased to have built, I think, the largest outside state legislative effort in the country's history. And, you know, our Giving Circles community continues to be just an extraordinary. If you told me 10 years ago that you would have hundreds and hundreds of Giving Circle leaders with over 10,000 donors doing state legislative work and lots of them participating in an odd year election in Virginia, I wouldn't have believed it. It is so far from where it should be requisite, so far from the requisite resources considering the influence. So yes, I would say that's one concern. Do you feel like we're going to be outgunned? Look, you know, they also listen to this podcast no, they and <laughs> look at the results. They have something we don't have, which is extremely wealthy people in these states, often with a very specific ideological or business interest in legislative control that fund massively and early. You see this in Michigan, where the DeVos family and affiliated folks do that and are continuing to do that. You see that in North Carolina. You're, you're going to see it in Virginia, too. So we'll see who's outgunned. The fact that that's even a question when we have a grassroots effort that really is focused on this with some help and attention from folks like you, I think is, is concerning. So Virginia is your first of two things high on your worry thing. What was the other one? In either ascending or descending order from the first, in lateral order, it is when my kids started kindergarten and came home and could read the word cat, that didn't mean that I was ready to read the great literature yet, but it was on a path. Cat in the hat is great literature. So He was on a path and is doing great now, <laughs> older, but... That's a little where we are as a movement and as an overall effort in terms of state legislatures. And I think that we think we can do everything we have to do and ingest all of the news and information and great literature that we have to, when really, exactly, we're on cat in the hat level here on state legislatures. This has to keep growing. So, and it's important to say, someone I admire a great deal, but you look at like the Beto O'Rourke gubernatorial campaign in, in Texas. We use that number because it's a similar number to ours. It was about a $65 million raise on that campaign. It, the fundamentals of that race were it made it a, a near impossibility. This should not be an either or. We should be funding many more races in many more places. I was talking about that a little bit before on a couple of states that fallen off the national map. But the idea that either state legislatures aren't as important as they used to be because of Morby Harper or that, oh, we've kind of figured this out and this is now going to be fine is extremely, extremely dangerous. This is a multi-year, multi-decade effort. ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, founded in 1972. Moral majority, including with lots of state chapters, founded in the late 70s. Americans for Prosperity, not founded until the mid-2000s. The idea on the right that state legislatures pay back in literal return on investment because of those business interests is baked in. Here, the idea that every donor in America, big ones, small ones, folks who are doing it through social media, folks who are doing it through large teams of foundations and advisors, aren't spending 5% of their dollars on all of the 99 state legislative chambers in the country is it is insanity. I'm afraid that we're not even going to get to the high watermark that we did because of the Morby Harper threat and that we'll think 
state legislatures, they're back in the also. You know the thing that kills me more than anything? Folks say, oh yeah, I also care about state legislatures. Imagine saying, oh yeah, I also care about Congress. Oh yeah, I also care about the presidency. I also care about state legislation. You mean you also care about the 49 mini Congresses plus Nebraska's unicameral chamber that exists around the country that the Supreme Court has over 40 years of Federalist Society inspired jurisprudence made more and more powerful? Oh, you also care about the entity that oversees your schools and universities and early childhood and wage laws. Oh, you also care about the entity that is the fundamental right to lock people up, access reproductive health care, support seniors so they can live healthier and longer. Oh, you also care about the entity that's going to build transit and roads and bridges or let them fall into disrepair. Oh, you also care about the entity that is going to invest in cleaner energy and a better energy grid and the power producers and distributors that contribute to it. It's not an also. It's the foundation of the politics. So did Moore v. Harper being decided as it did, which kind of popped the bubble of that scary thing, did that cut into fundraising for you guys? It's not a short-term issue in that way, I don't believe. I think it's it's more of a of a longer range issue and commitment and focus. And like state legislature is never going to be the shiny object. They're never going to be the most famous folks. There's so many of them, you know, sometimes more is less that it's going to be hard to focus on the single story or issue in a way that also leads to the foundational shift in sort of who has power and who's represented by those with power. This is a longer range concern. So the reason they're lateral is this Virginia concern We'll know the answer in five months. This this other concern is a longer range concern about how we're looking in an honest way about the direction of our country and what drives it. I think I asked you before when we talked about sort of the the balance of power in the playing field. And you said just a minute ago that, you know, the Republicans have kind of the ROI advantage of investing their money. But like when you look actually at the resources, the groups, the spending in Virginia and in state legislatures nationally, who's ahead right now? Or does it vary by state? And it vary it really varies by state. Yeah. yeah. It varies by state and, and time in the cycle. I actually don't know what the final numbers were in Michigan. I wouldn't be surprised in either case if it turns out that we'd spent a little more than they did. But we know that as of the beginning of 2022, they had raised a lot more. So they had more money earlier for planning. The answer is it varies. I think at some point, electoral spending arms races don't make sense. It's not about parity and spending. It's about being able to run the campaign where you take these races that don't get a lot of media coverage and you just make sure that the truth is known about both candidates. Like that's, that's more of a critical mass question than a competitive spending question. To get to critical mass in every potentially competitive district and every chamber where there's a potential power threshold in the country is more than we were even able to spend in 2022, even with our colleagues who also do state legislatures primarily, but still a tiny amount of money. It is less than five cents on the dollar of what's spent in the presidential race, less than one cent on the dollar of everything spent in politics over a cycle. So Daniel, you, you've been at this for a while. 
in a variety of groups work on elections at this level. What's keeping you in it? How much longer can you do this? What other things might you do with yourself? You notice the, uh, the color of my beard, I see, which I'm not sure that your listeners are able to. It's not, it's not quite where mine is, but yeah. <laughs> the change in color over the course of our conversations these, these few years. I would say a couple of things. Those concerns are nearly identical to the concerns I had six years ago. Now, again, six years ago, we hadn't learned how to read the cat in the hat. <laughs> as a movement, I'm not even sure. We acknowledged there were such a thing as books, you know, if to carry that metaphor too far. Uh, I think we did acknowledge there were books, and they shouldn't be banned, by the way, more broadly uh, as a movement. But again, to carry the metaphor too far. We've made real progress over the last six years. There's much more understanding of the ways in which state legislatures might be important. I continue to believe that the fundamental understanding of their position in our democracy and their fundamental position in achieving a promise of this country that I think started at its very founding and I think it continues to be a, a, a deep and profound struggle to keep for all Americans, but it's a pretty good promise if it is kept for all Americans around quality of opportunity for all people because they're people in this country, continues to feel every bit as urgent as it did. I'm really excited about that. I'm worried about that, as you can tell. And I do think that as we look at this over time, a question I have is, what are the foundations and institutions, the foundational pieces, not structurally, the foundational pieces and institutions that can make this true, that can change the tide here so that I can sit back a little bit more and my great colleagues at the States Project who do incredible, incredible work to, to create these outcomes every day, can sit back because it's not dependent on a couple of folks or a couple of voices in the wilderness. Yeah. It's, it's a structural reality. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I was going to ask next is we need to institutionalize this kind of effort, right? And you have by making a group, but a, a lot of times you see strong founders carry something 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, but then it falls apart in their absence or retirement or or moving on to something else. Where are you in terms of keeping this block of the progressive ecosystem, making it permanent? Uh, look, this is a thing that Adam Pritzker, who's, who's a co-founder and is still very, very involved as the chair, and I talk about a lot and are very focused on. I, you know, it is the obligation and opportunity, I think, of, of starting something to have it be something first longer than the length of your own arms, because none of our arms are long enough to do anything for long, and then have it be bigger and independent of you entirely. That is also the lesson, by the way, of the right wing. It's a lesson of people like Paul Weyrich and a memo Lewis Powell wrote, you know, and then moved on to the Supreme Court. So it's, it's the lesson everywhere. This is really important to say. At this point, the States Project is very far along on that journey. If funders and political observers and potential given circle leaders step up and stay stood up for it, the team you know, is well beyond anything I could have imagined. The number of people who just with their careers are willing to spend their time, they care about politics, they care about public policy, spend their time on state legislatures all day, every day, 
the caliber of folks that I work with. I, you know, I just hear her on a call is one of my colleagues, Esther Frazier. And she's one of a couple of dozen people that make up our team that are so good and get it deeply, right? Why states matter, why state legislatures matter, the fact that bringing a real power analysis and return on investment analysis to the work is a thing we've already done. That's really exciting. Making sure that the fuel is there for it to be an institution and making sure that the associated other components that will help this work, you know, other relationships in states, to come back to one of your early questions, that work is ongoing, but we're farther along at six years than I could have hoped in terms of building something driven by the extraordinary people who are here and not dependent on its founders. Do you think there's something missing? Is there a gap in adjacent things that need to be done on a state level? I mean, you mentioned Alec, we have some efforts analogous, but do you, in the general policy and electoral efforts that are out there, do we have enough going on or should people who are interested in this be working on supporting those things or forming other things? I think I'm a little alone on this in I think like lots of different flowers blooming is a good thing. I think entrepreneurial people who are public, whose goal is a set of values, not other goals, going out and trying to be creative and build things is positive. Obviously, that can, it can also become a distraction over time, but I think it's positive. I think that if we had every creative, interested, entrepreneurial person who cared about public policy and shared our values and beliefs in the American promise, doing something to impact state legislatures in the way they saw best, a grassroots effort in their local community, a different kind of organizing effort around a, an issue that feels esoteric now. If they started with the fulcrum will be state legislatures, the goal is a mission I care about, the tactics or theory of change or what I believe in, yes, we need a lot more. We have some thoughts about what some of those are and you know, over, over the coming months and years, we'll be excited to talk about them, but we would be much better if those were germinating and emanating from the states themselves and from lots of folks and not just from us and a couple of other efforts that you know, whatever in the period after Trump was first elected, you know, started kind of ramping these efforts up. Okay. Well, I don't want to take more of your time than I already have, but I do appreciate you talking again with me. Is there anything else you want to say? I appreciate your focus on this. Last year, again, there was the Morby Harper, there was ISL threat. Uh, but, you know, going back to 2019, what you and your listeners are doing is thinking all the time about politics beyond just whatever the top of the headline is or the A block is on cable news. I want to thank you for that and say, because why not? It's your air. I think even more on state legislatures would be well justified. So Daniel, who else should I talk to? Well, I think you should talk to state lawmakers themselves for one. There's incredible, inspiring leaders now in the majority, right? Leaders, both by title and just great lawmakers in both chambers of Michigan, both chambers of Minnesota, Pennsylvania House, one of the great untold stories of this year, that like <laughs> week to week electoral battle to maintain a majority. So, you know, I think that state lawmakers themselves, you know, some of them can make for a good interview. That's the first I would say. The second I'd say is there are folks who are fighting for state legislative policy changes in sort of a more traditional grassroots way 
in these states. Right? When there's an issue that you want to talk about, talk about it with someone fighting the state legislative fight in a specific concrete state, you know, rather than the national fight or the national group. So those are just two ideas off the top of my head. I, I'm sure that if I gave it more thought, I'd think of a bunch of other people. So any of my friends who I didn't mention, you should also talk to my friends who I'm not thinking of now on the spot. Thank you for your time. Thank you. That was Daniel. He's at statesproject.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.